Okay, here we go. Let's get straight into it together. I'm going to read Leviticus chapter 1, 1 to 9. So starting at verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hands on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Uh, Rowan Kemp, uh, the leader of the staff team, with the, which works alongside the EU, is now going to come and speak to us from this passage. Hi everyone, uh, why don't I lead us in a prayer as we come to reflect on God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, we thank you for your word that enlightens our darkness and we pray that as we think upon it together, that you might grant us the wisdom to understand it by your spirit and soft hearts to put it into practice, that we might bring glory to you as your creatures in your world. We pray it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Now, uh, 83 years ago, 83 years ago, 1930, a particular young man, well, young, you might not think he was young, he was 27, so I guess in your heads that's probably ancient, but anyway, I'll call him a young man. A 27-year-old man walked onto the Sydney University campus. His His name was Howard, Howard Guinness. He was a POM, he was from the UK. He arrived on campus and he was, by all accounts, a large guy. Large in physical stature, large in energy, large in passion, large in vision, large in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He spent three months in Australia. In that three months, he started evangelical ministries at the University of Sydney, universities in Melbourne, Brisbane and Hobart. In fact, he was the reason that the Evangelical Union under God came into existence because he persuaded some students of the day to start this very group in whose, you know, as part of we still meet with today. That, in that three-month period, he didn't just start those ministries in four different capital cities of Australia. He also started a schools movement, which you might have heard of, called the Crusader Movement. Yeah, he started that as well. Three months. Now, uh, interestingly... Australia was not the first place that Howard Guinness had visited. He actually came here via Canada, though, as I said, he was a POM. What happened was, a few weeks after he'd finished his medical training in the UK, he was about 25, um, a, a bunch of Christians in the UK sent him to Canada to start evangelical ministries in schools and universities in Canada. They'd been invited to send somebody over. They chose, put their hand on the shoulder of Howard and sent Howard. 
When they sent him, they sent him with a one-way ticket. A one-way ticket, a second-hand fur coat, because it's cold in Canada, and £14 for expenses. That was it. He was went over, he thought he'd be there for six months. He was end up, ended up there being for 18 months. He crisscrossed Canada, establishing evangelical ministries in schools and universities. Whilst he was there, he received a call from some people in Australia, hey, Howard, could you come and do the same thing in Australia and New Zealand? So he came, three months here, established those ministries. He then spent the next 10 years of his life travelling around the world, doing similar in a whole host of countries. I'll read you the list. He went, sometimes repeatedly, to India. This is the 1930s. India, South Africa, Spain, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Hungary, Switzerland, Belgium. He's been described by some as a maverick, a highly motivated, enthusiastic extrovert, and I'll quote here, with an unquenchable optimism of a pioneer whose life was apparently all risk, attack, venture and daring. But actually, as his original sending to Canada shows, and this is the bit I want to focus in upon, Howard Guinness embraced personal sacrifice for the sake of the Lord Jesus and the Gospel. He'd only just finished his medical degree a few weeks before He hadn't even practised medicine and wouldn't do so for the next 10 years. And he accepted a one-way ticket. How many here, me included, would accept a one-way ticket to go and be a missionary? He understood personal sacrifice for Jesus and Jesus' kingdom and glory. The reason we're talking about Howard Guinness just briefly at the start of of today is because the particular part of the book of of the Bible that we're looking at today from the book of Leviticus is all about sacrifice. And I want us to think in our own context now, not, not back in the days of Leviticus, not even in the 1930s with Howard Guinness, but think in our own day, what does sacrifice mean for those who call themselves followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what we're going to explore. But we're going to do it by exploring this book of Leviticus. Now, the EU, in its wisdom, has decided that we're going to tackle this book of Leviticus, this ancient and seemingly difficult book of Leviticus from the Old Testament, in a couple of chunks this year. We spent four weeks looking at it at the beginning of semester, if you can possibly remember back that far. We're going to spend this week and the next two weeks looking at another chunk and we'll do some more in second semester. But today we're going to look at the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus because those first seven chapters are all about this idea of sacrifice. Sacrifice, like making animal sacrifices and grain sacrifices and all sorts of different sacrifices was a key part of the Old Testament Jewish ritual that God gave his people to mark them out as his people. The first seven chapters of Leviticus are like a sacrifice manual. It told God's people and the priests how to do sacrifice. First five chapters seem to be directed mainly towards the people. Here's what you need to understand about sacrifices and it goes through five different types of sacrifices they were to offer. Then chapters six and seven go through the same five sacrifices but seemingly directed to the priests, the particular things that they have to do and know about. Okay? These seven chapters form a bit of a sacrifice manual. So we're not going to look at it verse by verse. We're going to try and understand, though, 
What were these five sacrifices about, these five different types of sacrifices? See if we can make sense of it and make sense of it in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ from a Christian perspective. That's what we're going to try and do, okay? Now, when we were looking at Leviticus earlier this year and we looked at it a couple of weeks, I tried to give you, if you were here, I tried to give you a, a toolbox a toolbox of things that you could use to understand this Old Testament book of Leviticus. And there were four different tools that I tried to give you to put in your Leviticus toolbox. You won't remember them, but what I'm going to do in the course of today is remind you of those different tools, okay? Because they're going to help us make sense of these seven chapters. The first tool was this. first tool was this. There is one big question to which all of Leviticus is the answer. One big question to which all of Leviticus is the answer. What was the big question? big question was simply this. How can the holy God, the one true God who, who really lives, how can this holy God who's pure, who, who cannot abide in the presence of evil, who is completely different to everything else he has made, who is full of love and mercy but also justice, how can this holy God live in the middle of an unholy people? Because truth be told, we all know deep in our own hearts, we don't want to do everything that God would have us do. And that's what the Bible calls sin, right? That's what the Bible says. That, at that very moment where we have that attitude, we don't want to do everything God wants us to do, which then shows in our life that attitude of sin means that we are unholy. So how can the holy God live in the middle of an unholy people? That's the big question to which Leviticus is God's answer. This is how. Okay? So that was the first part of the toolbox, that big question which governs the whole of the book. The second part of the toolbox that we looked at was how does this book of Leviticus fit together? Because it helps us work out the answer to that big question. Now you may remember, if you were here, the book of Leviticus is structured like this. For those listening on MP3, what a shame you weren't here to see what I just drew on the board. But anyway, it's a sort of a, an arrowhead going right or something. Anyway, that's how the book of Leviticus is structured. Now, that is, it comes into a central point but is balanced around that central point by common themes. Okay? Right at the centre of the book of Leviticus is chapter 16. And what's in chapter 16? It's a particular ritual called the Day of Atonement. Chapter 16. This is right at the very heart of the book. And why is that important? Because the answer to the big question, how can this holy God live amongst an unholy people, the answer is, he does it by making the people holy. That's how he can come and live in their midst, by making them holy. Not them sort of attaining holiness by their own efforts, no, by God coming and making them holy. And that's what the Day of Atonement symbolically represented, God making his people holy. There's the answer to the big question. But around this central point was balanced some common themes. Just before it and just after, there's a whole section about holy, the holy people of God. Just before it and just after. If you take another step out in the book of Leviticus, there's a section about holy priesthood. (laughs) 
And the outermost level of the book are what's called, what I've called anyway, a section on holy practices. And this is what we're looking at today. Now you'll see there there's two sets, two sections that deal with these holy practices. The first one are chapters 1 through 7, which is what we're looking at today. But there's another section down the bottom here, holy practices, which we're going to look at the next two weeks. The difference between them being the first section, 1 to 7, is all about sacrifices and offerings. The second section, down towards the end, is all about festivals and holy days. Okay? So if you like, to turn it into sort of Australianese and sort of hopefully not too disrespectful, you might, might characterise the first section, Holy, holy Practices, is all about barbecue, <laughs> what you're offering up, right? what you're burning up. The second section of Holy Practices is all about parties, how to do parties for the Lord. Right? Barbecues and parties. That's the Holy Practices that we're sort of looking at today and the next couple of weeks. Okay? Today, barbecues, sacrifices and offerings. Let's make sense of it all. Okay? So these first two tools, the big question... The structure of the book helps you understand where we're at. So when, now when you come to look in detail at the holy practices, this first section, the sacrifices and offering, I said there were five types of sacrifices. Five types of sacrifices. If, uh, your Bible might help you out by actually by having a couple of headings there. It would be great if you could open up Leviticus chapter 1 through to chapter 7. You can just flick through. You can see some different sort of sacrifices mentioned. I'm going to try to outline for you how these sacrifices, what they did, what what they were meant to symbolise, what they were meant to effect, and how they sort of functioned together. Okay? So they're not just sort of random lists, hopefully, in your Bible. So the way I've grouped them is three of the sacrifice, three of the five, have to do with sin and its consequences. Right? Three of them have to do with sin and its consequences, and the other two have to do with our response to God. Okay? So three had to do with... So if you, when you take them together, they cover the whole of our relationship with God. There's the problem of sin, which is a barrier between us and God. You have to deal with that. And then there's the... Once sin's dealt with, how do we make our response to God? The sacrifice has covered the whole of one's relationship with God. Okay? So first of all, the three that are about sin. Three that are about sin. Okay, first, first one that was about sin is the very first one in, listed in the book. It's the one that Matt read out for us. The, what's called the burnt offering. The burnt offering. The burnt offering comes about understanding that sin, sin is wrongdoing. Each of these three sacrifices do with sin are, to do, are all going to focus on a different angle on sin. So the burnt offering focuses on sin as wrongdoing. When, when we say to God, get stuffed, I don't really want to do what you tell me to do, that's wrongdoing, right? We've actually rebelled against God, gone a different way. Now the thing is, when we do that as human beings, it really is incredibly presumptive, isn't it? Because, I mean, God is God, we are the creatures he has made and loved. For us to say, we don't care what you think, we'll just do our own thing, it's, inc- it's actually at a deep creation level immoral to say that to the Creator, to say it to our Creator. And the right, just response of the God who has made us and loved us and who knows that actually His ways are what's best for us 
the right response is to call us into line, to execute his justice upon us. And so what you see under the burnt offering, it understands that sin is wrongdoing, that sin incurs the wrath of God against sin. And so what we need in that case, what we need is for God's anger to be turned away from us. The technical word is we need propitiation. We need to turn away God's anger. And that's what the burnt offering was to do. It turned away God's anger and the result of it was you're reconciled with God. You have right standing with God again. Now, the reason the burnt offering is listed first is it was the most common offering. It was offered every day, in fact, twice a day, every morning and every night. It used animals that were more valuable. Um, the whole body of the animal went up on the altar. So, sort of a total, like, you know, none was, some of the other sacrifices, some of the meat was kept for different people to eat. But in this case, the whole lot went up, saying, this is really important. Um, it goes up and it's described in chapter 1 verse 9 there as a fragrant aroma to the Lord. Now, it's not that the Lord... Ha- God doesn't have nostrils. He doesn't actually smell you, right? But the offering is described symbolically as a fragrant aroma to the Lord, meaning that it turns away God's anger. He's now pleased with what has happened. Uh, it's an interesting example you can look up later. I'll just jot down the reference. Job chapter 42, Job 42, 7 and 8. You'll see at the end of the book of Job when Job's crazy, well, not crazy, stupid friends had come and said things that were wrong about God to him. God says at the end to them, you guys need to get Job to offer a burnt offering for you so that I don't deal with you according to your folly. Do you see how the burnt offering turns away God's anger? Okay, so the burnt offering understands sin is wrongdoing and it turns away God's anger. That's the first type of sin offering, right? The next type of offering to do or sacrifice to do with sin is actually called, in in my Bible, it's called the sin offering, which is a bit confusing. I reckon we should rename it, um, probably call it the purification offering because that seems to be what the point was, the purification offering. What's behind this is understanding that sin is not just wrongdoing, sin is also... Pollution. It pollutes us. It makes us unclean. Remember the big question for Leviticus? How can the holy God dwell amongst an unholy people? Sin makes us unholy, unclean. So what it calls into question is God's presence amongst us. It's not God's anger that's in question here. This time it compromises the presence of God. So what we need, to, what we need here is cleansing. And that's what this particular purification offering or sin offering was meant to do. Uh, It was a bit different to the burnt offering. It wasn't offered as often. It was offered at particular moments after you had uh, were coming out of a period of ritual uncleanness, which we'll talk about later next semester. You would offer this purification offering. It was offered at various festivals. It was offered whenever you discovered that you'd committed a sin. And so that's when you would offer a purification offering. It used less valuable animals than the burnt offering. And interestingly, the, the portions of the animal that had fat on it, they were burnt up to the Lord. And the rest was either burnt outside the camp. Why is that? Well, because the whole idea of the camp was God wants to dwell amongst his people and they're to be holy. Unholy things are sent outside the camp. So the sin offering, you lay your hands on it and symbolically it is burnt up outside the camp. It goes outside the camp instead of you. 
So that's how it was used. Um, and the fascinating thing about the um, sin offering or the purification offering that tells you it's actually about pollution and cleanness is that what they would do with this offering is they would capture the blood from the animal. I mean, it's pretty gory, isn't it? But you capture the blood from the animal and the blood would be sprinkled in a relevant part of the tent of meeting, right? The central part of the camp where the Lord symbolically dwelt amongst his people. So if it was a regular Israelite, then the blood was sprinkled in the courtyard. If it was a priest who'd, who'd sinned and was unclean and needed to be cleansed, then it was sprinkled in the holy place where only the priests could go. And then once a year, the blood was taken into the most holy place to atone for the sins of the whole people, including for the high priest as well. So you can see there that the, by the way, the place where the blood was sprinkled, it's actually about proximity to the holy God and cleansing you so you can come into his presence. That was the point of this sin or purification offering. Okay? You with me? Okay, sin as wrongdoing, burnt offering. Sin as pollution, purification offering. Final sin one. Sin as debt. Sin as debt. It's clear, actually, when you read Leviticus, that sin requires some sort, puts us in God's debt and requires some sort of repayment to God. It needs reparation would be a better word. So in my Bible it's called the guilt offering, probably better to call it the compensation offering or the reparation offering. It's the one that you use to clear the debt that you owe to God. Um, this was for particular sins, sins against some of the Lord's holy things. It used the most valuable animals but it wasn't offered as often because presumably these sins happened less often. Um, the fat was burnt, the rest of the body was eaten by the priests and you had to pay an extra 20% in sort of money to atone for the debt that you had incurred. Okay? So, three different types of offering to do with sin. Burnt offering, sin as wrongdoing. Purification offering, sin as pollution. And the reparation or guilt offering, sin as debt. Got it? Excellent. That's all the different ways of understanding in the Old Testament, different ways of understanding what our sin does between us and God. Okay? Those were three of the offerings. There's two other offerings that they offered. These are not to do with sin. These are to do with our response to God. I can deal with these quite quickly. First one was what's called the grain offering. So it's not an animal this time. You take particular grains, you put it together, bake it together into a cake and you offer it on the altar and it's it's not actually burnt up. What's happened is there's a memorial portion of it, a handful of it that's burnt on the altar. The rest of the cake goes to the priests and they get to eat it. Okay? That's called the grain offering. It's, the grain offering symbolised dedication to God, committing yourself, recommitting yourself to God. It was usually offered with the burnt offering. The burnt offering saying, God, I've done wrong. And then after you've offered that, you offer the grain offering. You recommit yourself to God. Okay? That's the grain offering. And the last one is what's called the um, fellowship offering. Now, the fellowship offering was completely optional. You could actually live your whole life as an Israelite and never offer the fellowship offering. It's completely, completely optional. Uh, the only time it's, you're told you have to do it is after you've... If you make a vow in front of the Lord... After you've completed your vow, then you offer the fellowship offering. But that's because vows themselves are voluntary, right? So this offering was never, never forced upon you, 
but you used it when you'd completed a vow and saying sort of, thank you, Lord, you've, you, you know, I've been able to do what I said before you. You could use it as a free, free will offering. That is just out of just, Lord, I, just, I love being part of your people. I love you, Lord. Here's my free will offering. You can do it as a moment of thanks. Thank you for answering my prayers. It was this free, voluntary response to God of thanksgiving, right? The interesting thing about that, that one was when you brought the animal for the fellowship offering, what would happen is the, the bits of the animal which had the fat on it, they're offered to the Lord. The right thigh and the breast meat goes to the priests and the rest of the animal for you and your family to eat in the holy place. Hence, fellowship offering. We eat it together, okay? And if, if you ever wanted to eat meat as an Israelite, the only, and you weren't a priest, the only way you ever ate meat was via a fellowship offering. So I guess one consequence was it's, it's voluntary, but, you know, welcome to vegetarian land. You know, <laughs> that was the consequence. But if you wanted to eat meat, it was via the fellowship offering. Okay? All right, now I've just told you probably way more about the... Um, sacrificial system of the Old Testament than you ever possibly wanted to know, but at least now when you read chapters 1 to 7, it's going to make sense to you. Under God's grace, we've just unlocked seven chapters of the Bible for you. That's not too bad in however many minutes that was. (laughs) However, this is not Old Testament studies. This is not ancient Judaism 101. This is an evangelical union public meeting. Evangelical Union are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're Christians, right? So the question is, what do we make of all of that Old Testament Judaistic ritual, sacrificial ritual, in the light of the Lord Jesus? What do we do with that? That's a good question. So I have some help for us, I hope. Let's go back to the toolbox, your Leviticus toolbox. We had the big question and we had the structure of Leviticus. There was a third tool. There was a third tool that we tried to put in that toolbox earlier this year, and it was this. It was, it was a, a, a way to try to work out what to do with the Old Testament law from a Christian perspective, in the light of all that the Lord Jesus has done, in light of his death and resurrection. What do we make of that Old Testament law? What we said earlier this year was, there's three things that happen to the law from a Christian point of view. The first thing is that law as a code, as a sort of a legally binding code of laws, that law has been repealed. It's been repealed as legislation. It no longer applies if you are a Christian following the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? That was the first thing we said. It's been repealed. Second thing we said was, we now recognise in that law though that there's prophecy. It's repealed as legislation but we recognise in that law prophecy that points forward to the greatest act that God has ever done in human history, what he did in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's prophecy pointing forward to Christ. The third thing we noticed about it was, though, we also reappropriate that law, the details of it, not not as something we have to live by, but we reappropriate it as wisdom if it's understood in light of Jesus. There's wisdom there. Not rules, wisdom. Okay? Repealed as legislation... Recognise as prophecy, reappropriated as wisdom. All right? So, let's, let's use that. Let's use that with respect to these chapters on sacrifices and offering. First of all, repealed as legislation. Now, uh, the fourth toolbox 
fourth thing in the toolbox I said to you last time was, if you want to understand Leviticus from a Christian point of view, where do you go in the New Testament? Is a great place to start. Anyone remember? The book of Hebrews, right? That was the fourth tool in our toolbox. Go to the book of Hebrews because that helps you. It's, it's just so often making commentary on the book of Leviticus understood in the light of Jesus and what Jesus has done. So when you do that, when you use Hebrews here, you can see some things. So you've got your Bible there. Actually, I'll just read this one out so you can jot it down. Hebrews chapter 9. Later on you can look it up. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 through 14 or so. Let me just read it out to you, what the writer of the Hebrews says there, reflecting on that old sacrificial law. He says, The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, until the time of the new order when Christ came. You see what he's saying? He's saying that oh, those things, they were, that, was, that only existed for a time until the new order arrived with Christ. So that, those laws no longer apply. That's a way of saying repealed, right? They don't apply anymore. You notice it did say something else. It said they were actually ineffective in cleansing the conscience of the worshipper. They were never actually able to deal with the very problem of sin. They couldn't actually make you clean in God's sight. So that's a bit of a problem. That brings us to the second thing. How do we see in those laws about sacrifice, how do we see prophecy pointing forward to Jesus? Well, remember how I said there were three different types of sacrifice there about sin in those chapters? In each of those different sacrifices for sin, the burnt offering, the purification offering and the reparation offering, each of those you can trace forward, I, I think actually in the book of Hebrews, to see they all three come together into the person of Jesus. Right? They point forward to Jesus as where the actual debt was paid, the actual cleansing occurred, the actual penalty was executed for sin. So I'll give you some references you can go away and look up later. Um, if you want to understand how Jesus' death on the cross was the penalty for sin, the equivalent of the burnt offering, you can go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 to 14. Hebrews 10, 10 to 14. If you want to understand Jesus' death as the sin offering or the purification offering, you can go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, 11 to 12. Actually flick that open now. I'll just show you this one. Hebrews 13, 11 to 12. Hebrews 13, 11 to 12, let me show it to you here. He's reflecting on the old, the old Levitical law. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, right? There's one of those types of sacrifice. But the bodies are burned outside the camp, as we said. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. You see there, he's likening Jesus to that purification offering from Leviticus. You can also see, I think, in Hebrews, and I put this, someone pointed this out to me yesterday, very helpfully, um, that in Hebrews, you can also see that Jesus' death is the, is the debt. It's like the reparation or the guilt offering. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, which you can look up later, Hebrews 9, 15, it says, Christ has died as a ransom 
to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. A ransom is a repayment, right? A payment of a debt that frees others. That's understanding sin incurring a debt. So I think all three of those sort of sacrifices you can see, Hebrews says, the reality that actually paid the penalty, that actually cleared the debt, that actually cleansed them, was in Jesus and his death. So if you stop back and think about that, you can see, I guess, the big change between old covenant and new covenant, big change in Christ is this. Under the old covenant, there's sacrifices for sin made to God by the people. In the new covenant, it's the sacrifice for sin, once only, made by God for the people. That's the big difference between the two. God himself makes the sacrifice for us in the person of his son Jesus. That's prophecy. What about understanding it as wisdom? Okay. Very interesting when you reflect on what it would have been like to be an Old Testament Jew. The entirety of your life would have been filled with sacrifice. Let me just run through it for you. There were the daily burnt offerings and grain offerings every day. There were the purification offerings whenever you realised you'd sinned. I don't know if you ever think, you ever go, oh wow, I've done something God wouldn't want me to do. Any time that happened, you would offer a purification offering, right? So that might mean you do that a little bit. Any time you touched anything unclean, purification offering. Any time you gave birth to a child, it only affects some, I realise that, a burnt offering or a purification and a, and a purification offering. Any time you were pronounced clean from a skin disease, there would be a purification offering, a reparation offering, a burnt offering and a grain offering. Any time you'd had, and I'm trying to be discreet here, a bodily discharge, I'm talking about you've had some semen come out, I'm talking about you've had your period, whatever, then you would offer a purification offering and a burnt offering. Whenever you wanted to eat meat, a fellowship offering. When it, every Sabbath day, once a week, every Sabbath day, there were extra burnt offerings and grain offerings. At beginning of every month, when there was a new moon, there would be burnt offerings and grain offerings. And at all the different festivals or parties that we'll look at next week throughout the year, there were all sorts of extra burnt offerings, grain offerings, purification offerings. Your life was full of sacrifice. Do you get the idea? It was going on all the time. Praise God it's not like that now. <laughs> Wrong wrong. What does the New Testament tell us? Romans chapter 12 verse 1 I urge you in view of God's mercies expressed to us in Jesus, to sacrifice Jesus, in view of God's mercies to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God this is your true and reasonable worship. It's not that your life was full of sacrifice, as it was for them. Now your life is a sacrifice. You offer yourself every day as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable in His sight in Christ. All of life is a sacrifice for God's people. If you call yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus, Here's my question for you. Does that characterise the way you think about your life? If you say you're following Jesus, call yourself a Christian, has sacrifice 
characterised your daily life. In view of God's mercies, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Not because that's earning you salvation or favour with God. No, that's been done in the Lord Jesus Christ because this is our appropriate faith-filled response to what he's done, to his mercies. We offer ourselves to him. It's very interesting, uh, when I started by talking about Howard Guinness and his life of sacrifice. In that 10 years, in the 1930s, he wrote a little booklet called Sacrifice. I think you can get it online. You're going to have a look at it because it's way out of print now. But the reason he wrote this little book on sacrifice was very straightforward. It was this. He said that the Christian church had pulled back from sacrifice as a way of discipleship under the Lord Jesus. And as a result, in his estimation, global mission was being impeded. So he wrote this booklet as a wake-up call to Christians. And let me just read to you how the book ends. I'll read you just this little bit. Think 1930s, right? Here we go. Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap and be faithful even unto death? Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are his lovers, those who love him and the souls of people more than their own reputation or comfort or very life? Where are those who say no to self, who take up Christ's cross and bear it after him? who are willing to be nailed to it in university or office or home or mission field, who are willing, if need be, to bleed, to suffer and to die on it. Sacrifice. Have we given up on sacrifice? And he's, it was very clear in his booklet, he was not just on about you know, getting you to think, he wanted action. At the very last page of the booklet, he wrote this, this booklet will not have fulfilled its purpose if it has only awakened conscience and not precipitated action. We must act. It is to help you to decide about this great issue, that a prayer is appended here with a space below for your signature. What would you voluntarily give up? See, the Lord Jesus is not standing and going, I want you to give up this and I want you to give up this and I want you to give up this as a command. No, it is voluntary. It's a free will offering. What would you choose? What are you willing to generously give up of of your own free volition for Jesus and his kingdom? Will you give up your reputation? Will you give up your career? Will you give up your time just tomorrow or this week or next month? Will you give up your aspirations for where you will live? Will you give up your aspirations for what work you will do? What would you voluntarily give up for him who gave it all up for you? In whose steps you say you are now following? Have we given up on sacrifice? Let me listen to prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might so work your truth into our hearts and minds that we don't just hear your word, but that we do it to your praise and glory. Amen.